love and your mercies are new each and every day. God, we give you praise and glory for all that you've done and for all that you will continue to do. Pray in your son's name, amen. You guys go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, Dwayne and worship team this morning. Thank you. I don't know if you can appreciate how difficult it is to walk in on a Sunday morning and play with a group of musicians you never played with and, and pull it off and look like you've actually done it before. So well done, all y'all. Nicely done, nicely done. Well, hey, it's really good to be home. We're glad to be back. <clears throat> Although, what's 115 in a couple days? I don't sound like a tough Arizonan yet, do I? It's only been 18 years. Give me another 10, and, and then I'll get there, all right? Well, we're in a series on the life of David, and just to recap the series, I think this is the seventh week, and we started strong, right? We looked at um, just this encouraging truth that God looks at the heart, and then we spent a couple weeks talking about the story of David and Goliath, and that's an inspiring story, right? It's about, it's about being our true selves. It's about fighting the battles in front of us fighting the battles, knowing that God is with us, that he's going to have our back. Uh, and then Yvonne, she did a fantastic job and talked about having an authentic heart and how David had an authentic heart and he just came to God as he was and we can do the same. And Yvonne just did a fantastic, fantastic job. And then last week, Ryan Starr preaches his first sermon ever, right? Holy cow, nicely done. Ryan, and so he figured he needed the week off, so he's out of town this weekend after that. No, it was really, really good. I, I, we listened to it when we were uh, actually in the car coming back from, what was it, like 60 degrees up in the North Shore of Lake Superior. It was beautiful, it was beautiful, and we listened to and missed you guys, um, and so it's just been, it's such a wonderful series, and then we don't really want to dodge parts of the story, right? So we don't want to skate through stuff that's difficult. We, we just kind of do that here at Hope anyway. We want to tr- preach the whole story of God, right? We want to tell the whole story, the encouraging, hopeful, inspiring pieces, and we don't want to skip over the hard stuff either, And many people um, don't know, even if they know their Bible pretty well, that David actually was on the run, living as a fugitive, for between 10 and 15 years. After the whole David and Goliath thing, and after he was a warrior, he was a fugitive on the run. And so when I was up here two weeks ago, we talked about that. We called it the cave season of David's life. And I also mentioned last uh, time I was here, uh, in the life of every follower of Jesus, there come times of of doubt, um, seasons of confusion, unpleasant times where maybe hope is just fading fast or gone altogether, and we call it a a cave season, a a wilderness experience. Um, Some people call it the dark night of the soul. Uh, It happens. And so two weeks ago, as we continued to follow the story of the life of David, we called that again the cave experiences. And to recap David's story, if you've been with us so far on this journey of messages we started uh, in June, David had a quick ascent, right? He was anointed in secret when he was still a boy to become the next king of Israel. And then he became an instant hero to the whole nation when he killed the giant Goliath. Then he was promoted to be a commander in the army and everyone loved him. Even King Saul, who he was going to one day replace, he welcomed him into his family initially. 
But King Saul, who was a real mess, uh, he grew jealous and paranoid. And after repeated attempts on David's life, David had to flee. So he goes from being this instant hero to a fugitive. And eventually we traced his steps till he found himself in a cave. And we stopped and said, he's expecting to be king. He's expecting a palace one day, but instead he's living in a cave. And you know, the cave experiences that we have, it's where we find ourselves from time to time, and it can be brought on by a variety of things, but, but, but one thing I do believe is certain, and I said this a couple weeks ago, every one of us in this room will log some time in the cave. Guaranteed, Right? There's no escaping it. That was the focus of the last message. And so this week, I want to look a little more at at how do we respond and how did David respond to that kind of crisis? And how would we respond to those kinds of crises? Because the truth is, no matter how well we live, no matter how spiritual we are, no matter how obedient to God we are, every single one of us in the room are going to log some time in the cave. One writer um, said, that I read, he said, cave time is just core curriculum in the school of spirituality. In spiritual maturity, cave time, it's just part of the deal. So we could call it whatever we want. We could call it uh, uh, the pit, the prison, the desert, the wilderness. The cave is basic training for all believers. I mean, just think about this if you think quickly through the story of Scripture. Joseph, uh, in Genesis, he had a prison. Moses and the people of God had the desert. The prophet Jeremiah had a pit. Daniel had a lion's den. And Paul, uh, the apostle Paul, was in and out of jail several times. And even Jesus had a cave, right? He once spent three days in a cave. So I think if Jesus had cave time, I think it's safe to say that the cave won't be optional for any of us, right? Every follower of Jesus logs some time in the cave. The cave can also feel like a place of death, but it can be a good thing. It could be dying to ourself. The cave also is a place of testing. Uh, the, the cave is a, a furnace for purifying our character. The cave is where our maturity gets revealed, our weaknesses. This is no fun. Our weaknesses often get exposed, I think about my own story um, and people I know. You put a person in a cave of of distress or discouragement or or doubt, and some of those character things start to float on up, right? Our, Our struggles, our weaknesses. And if we're brave enough to admit those struggles, those weaknesses, the truth about us, then the cave can also show us where God might want to be at work in forming and shaping us as people. Some of the stress that I know that I've been, I obviously had to you know, write this message and then think it through my own grid, and, and, and um, I thought, you know, wow, some of the stress that I've been under, even recently, it's shown me <laughs> that I have a long ways to go before I'm completely free of things like anger or impatience or frustration or, or arrogance, and, and the pressure of the cave reveals these weaknesses, these unhealed places inside of us. And can you imagine for David, 10 to 15 years of that? Now, I think that among the most common responses we have, just naturally when we're in a cave season, or at least one of my responses in these cave seasons, is to wonder, why am I in this cave? And sometimes we assume, well, it must be me, right? 
okay, God's working on something in me. It must be me, all right? Uh, maybe I did something wrong. Uh, maybe I took a wrong turn somewhere because I knew that the promise of God was a palace. It was a throne, but I'm not seeing that. So if I'm not seeing the promise of God, then, then it must be on me. Uh, maybe I took a wrong turn because I know God made a promise. So if he made a promise, it's going to happen. So I just must have got off course somewhere, right? So it's got to be me. It must be me. Like, and if I thought I was following God into this thing that's now turned south on me, maybe I wasn't following God. And, you know, we can beat ourselves up this way uh, a lot. <laughs> um, and sometimes if we're in a cave season, we start to go, well, maybe I'm harboring some secret sin. And so, like, I start repenting of things. And actually, <laughs> you know, it's not too hard to think of things to repent of if you're an honest person. Um, but sometimes we get a little, you know, just trying to figure out why this is happening. And um, we think, oh, it's a secret sin that must have caused me to misread what God's doing, what he's saying. And so, um, but here's the truth, friends. Here's the truth. Um, sometimes the reason we're in a cave-like place is because of sin. Some of you thought I was going to let us off the hook there, right? <laughs> um, but sometimes it is, right? I mean, think of the story of Moses, right? Between his time of being this young prince in Egypt, and then there's this 40-year gap before he comes to deliver the people of God. And he's stuck in the desert for 40 years as a shepherd. Um, that 40-year wandering had something to do with him killing an Egyptian, right? So in that case, yes, it was a consequence of his choices. So sometimes, yes, it is that. But sometimes it has nothing to do with sin, this cave experience that we find ourselves in. And that's why I wanted to walk around this for another week a little more. Um, because like with David, right, his whole cave experience had nothing to do with his sin. He was in this cave because of King Saul's sin, because of Saul's paranoia. So it was someone else's deal. Another reason that I was thinking about that we might find ourselves in a cave is because of spiritual warfare. So we'll be like, okay, it was the devil. I mean, why else would I be struggling? God promised this thing and it's not happening, so it's being blocked. Well, you know what? Actually, okay, sometimes, sometimes it is. It is the enemy. Like, Scripture is really clear to say that there is an enemy who opposes the good things in our lives, that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? So sometimes when you are under spiritual harassment or oppression or attack, it might be the enemy. But sometimes it's not. Does anybody else get confused about this kind of stuff, right? Yeah? Yeah, like, welcome to life, Doug. Life is confusing. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's other people's sin, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's the enemy, sometimes it's not. I don't always know. Don't you wish you knew? <laughs> Like, sometimes we pretend we know, but we don't know. And we like it when we hear people that sound like they know, but hello, they don't know. <laughs> um, so I want to throw another thing into the pot of our thinking here. We're going to step away from David's story for a moment. We're going to rewind in the book, uh, back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, um, where the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, and they were led out of Egypt by Moses. So God, if you know the story, God sets them free from slavery and he promises them to take them to a new homeland that's flowing with milk and... Yeah, all right. Sounds sticky. Um, so they're off to the promised land and they know that it's just a few days journey away, right? And does anybody remember how long it took them to, you know, wander in the wilderness before they got to the promised land? 
40 years. It was just a few days walk if they had just gone there, right? So look at this in verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them on the road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest way from Egypt to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them along a route through the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the Israelites left Egypt like a marching army. Leaving Succoth, I think that's how you say that one, um, they camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord guided them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from their sight. So did you notice that line uh, a few verses? On, it would have been the last slide there. It said, who led them? The Lord led them. And then it said, the Lord guided them. See, one of the tricky realities of this story here is that they're wandering. It wasn't because of Satan, um, and it wasn't because of, of sin either. Not at the start, anyway. Um, so if those were our only paradigms, then we'd be a little confused. We'd be at a loss here. Because here in this story, Exodus 13, it was God who was leading them on this roundabout way of the desert and not bringing them in via the straight shot. Which if we are paying attention to the story, and I don't just mean this story here in Exodus, I mean the story of the kingdom of God, like the story of life that we are in. If we're paying attention to that story and the fact that sometimes it is God who leads us into these places, it reveals something that I touched on a couple weeks ago, that God is not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. And that is very irritating to people like me, yeah? <laughs> God always, almost always, seems to have this agenda beyond the one that I have, uh, beyond the one that's obvious to me. For example, in the story of David, the obvious, you know, agenda was David was promised the throne. He's not looking for it. He wasn't even asking for it, but he got anointed as the next king of Israel. So come on, let's just get on with it already, right? So the obvious agenda, and this is not a sinful thing, it's not a bad thing, the agenda would be, oh, he was promised this thing. Okay, get him to the throne, right? Get me to the throne. I'm anointed. I'm called. I have the mantle. Give it to me. That's the agenda. I've got the destination, the goal. That's where we want to get to. Let's go do it, right? It's pretty normal. Um, or for the story we just read in Exodus 13, the people of God, their objective, their agenda is to get to this land they were promised, the land of milk and honey. So why the cave? Why the wilderness? Why the delay? Well, the best I could come up with in these wonderings and my reading was that when it's God who is the one who delays the the trip, when he leads that wandering, he has a different agenda than we have. My friend David Johnson says it this way, God's agenda for his people, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether we accept it or not, almost always has to do with who we are becoming, has more to do with who we are becoming than where it is we are going or what it is we're accomplishing, even for God. Right? God's agenda for you and me almost always has more to do with who we are becoming than where it is that we're going or, or even what it is we're accomplishing in his name or for him. And that's why these cave experiences are so incredibly important and why God's people spend prolonged periods 
periods of time here. People like David and, and Joseph and Moses and the Apostle Paul and people like you and people like me, everybody, <laughs> logs some time in the cave. And I think if you were to look at David's whole story, his whole life from the time he was young until he was an, an older man and became the king, spoiler alert here, it's going to happen, so... Um, uh, but that whole, that whole span of time, in all his years, maybe some of his best days, especially as it relates to what God formed in his heart, his best days of his life might have been those cave years. <laughs> not the most enjoyable, uh, not years he wanted to go back to, but in terms of the things that God was shaping in his heart, those cave years, I believe, were the most formational years of his life. Because it was there in that time, in that season, those, those awful years in the cave, that David developed an unshakable confidence in God. He began to trust God and know that no matter what happened, he was going to hang on to God. Now, that, even that phrase, like an unshakable confidence in God. Like, I don't know that I have an unshakable confidence in God yet. Like, I hope I do. I hope you do as well. I, I think after all the years of struggle and, and wilderness and caves, that my confidence in God is getting stronger for sure. But learning to have an unshakable confidence in God, it's not something we just learn uh, because we heard a good sermon. Um, I promise you, you're not going to walk out of here with <laughs> like unshakable confidence just because of a great sermon. Um, you're not going to leave this place, uh, this, this talk has no power to do that. Um, and we don't learn unshakable confidence in God from a book or a class or a Bible study. And all those things are good, important things. Where we learn something like unshakable confidence in God, we learn that in the desert. We learn that in the cave. Because the cave will press it into us. We learn it in, in the belly of the whale, like Jonah. We learn it in an Egyptian prison where we've been falsely accused like Joseph. We learn it in the desert, tending sheep like Moses and like David. We learn it in prison like the Apostle Paul. We learn it when all seems lost and when hope seems to be gone. Like it's not something we think our way into it. We live our way into it. That's where we actually own it. That's where we learn it. That's where we are formed and changed. We get changed in the desert, in the cave, in the belly of the whale. We get changed in the prison. Which is not really fun news. <laughs> A warning here, though. Uh, deep growth when we're in the desert uh, or in the cave, it's not automatic. How many of you can think of someone that you know that's gone through something really painful had desert experiences, and they didn't grow. Like, they're bitter, sour, shriveled up, self-protective people. Can, can you think of anybody like that? Or maybe me, I've been that way. Um, so it's not automatic. That doesn't just happen. Think back to Moses and this Exodus story. The first thing that happens to these people in the desert, and they find themselves in the wilderness wandering, is what do they want to get? They want to get out, right? They want to get out of the desert. And we could look at them and be like, oh, those terrible people, right? They're so shallow. No, no, no. That's normal, right? It's normal. There's nothing wrong with that, right? It's normal. 
But I think the danger in looking for a way out is, is when we look for a quick fix, like the quick out. And the quickest fix for the Exodus 13 people when they were in the wilderness was God was worried they'd go where? Back to Egypt, right? That was going to be their quick fix. But in the wilderness, God was shaping them, teaching them, preparing them to be his people. And then a few chapters later, Exodus 19, verse 4, God says to Moses and the people of Israel, "Um, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And I kind of wonder from this verse if part of what God's saying to Moses is, hey, Moses, you know that part where I led you around about the way of the wilderness and didn't do the straight shot right to the promised land and the people thought that I abandoned you, that I abandoned all of you? But here's what was really going on. I was lifting you up on eagles' wings. That's what really was happening in that desert, cave, wilderness wandering experience. Now, that being born on, born upon, up, I think the King James is born up on eagles' wings. It sounds like a wonderful experience, right? To be carried on eagles' wings. That's, that's what I thought it was going to be like to walk with God. So I'm, I'm on the eagle and we're flying above everything and all my problems are down there. I'm above it all. That's what I signed on for, right? Um, but that's not actually the real picture of eagles' wings here. In fact, this reference to eagles' wings It's referring to how eagles teach their young to fly. Anybody know how they do that? Yeah, they push them out of the nest, right? Because the parent eagle knows that if they don't push the eaglets out of the nest, the eaglet will be content to just sit and consume and consume for the rest rest of its life. Now, um, how many of you parents know that if you were to let your little eaglets stay in the house till they're, you know, 45, they'd be content to just sit and consume, right? Um, I think that's why we call it an empty nest, right? Um, And then when the little eaglet gets pushed out of the nest, oftentimes, you know, the moms get all sad and weepy. And the dads, you know, we're going, yeah, woohoo, all right. A little bit of a generalization there. I cried, okay, all right. Um, But let me, yeah, yeah. You got a ways to go, son, so. Let me kind of explain, though, why there would even be some excitement around that. It's not because, you know, any parent is like, yes, we're finally rid of them, right? That's not usually why. Um, here's why. As a parent, we want these eagles to learn to fly, right? That's, that's why we're here as parents. And similarly, that's one of God's purposes in our life as his children, too, to teach us how to to fly or to to live. Like God's saying, hey, listen, I'm not going to only just carry you everywhere for the rest of your life. Like I will empower, I will never leave you, I will be with you, but but, kiddo, there's some things you'll need to learn to do, like, you know, grow and mature and live life. So he pushes them out. And when he pushes them out of the nest, they are flopping and flailing and they think they're going to die. But they don't, because the parent didn't just kick them out to let them die. The parent eagle now swoops down before they hit the ground and then bears them up on eagle's wings, carries them back along, right? Can you imagine being the little eaglet, like, first time it happens? Oh, okay. Oh, oh, this is great. Oh, wow. I'm, like, on the back flying. This is amazing. Wow, this is really cool. Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Mom. Now I'm safe until they get back up to the heights, because then what happens again, right? Uh Uh-oh, right? The eagle drops them again. 
and down they go, and they flail and flop, and, and they do it again, and again, and again, until they learn how to fly, until we learn how to fly. <clears throat> this is weird, okay? But it, just try to imagine being the little eagle. I'm guessing that during this process of being carried up and dropped again, the baby eagle doesn't feel real good about mom or dad, right? <laughs> Right? Probably real confusing. I thought you were an eagle of love, right? <laughs> the pastor said you were. I thought I could just stay on your lap all the time. Well, yes and no, right? Um, see, God's intention is to eventually grow us up into the fullness he intends for us. And he will use cave seasons to bring us into deeper maturity and refinement Sometimes he'll even use that, those seasons to prepare us for what he has for us. But it's never easy. Here's something else that I know, um, this one from experience, about cave seasons. In the middle of really difficult stuff, we all get tempted to look for the quick fix or an escape. There's a really important connection, I think, between the temptation of a quick fix and the cave or the desert. Like when I'm in a cave or a dark season of life, when I'm discouraged, I'm vulnerable. This is just how life works. And all of us will be vulnerable to any temptation that promises to get us out of the cave or, or even just give us a few moments of, of relief. Each one of us is uniquely vulnerable to something. You probably know what yours is, and I definitely know what mine is. And for all of us, it would be tempting to go back to what we know to just get a little relief, right? To just, oh, I just need to have some control or escape or just go back to whatever it is that we use to medicate our pain because we know, right? We know the shortcut. We know the quick fix. And when we take the shortcut, when we opt for the quick fix, we usually know that it's not freedom. <laughs> we know it isn't joy. We know it isn't life. We know it's not fullness but it is relief, at least for a moment. Now, remember David's story. He's being hunted by King Saul for no reason. Saul just wants to kill him. David had done nothing wrong. Paul probably, Paul, Saul didn't even know yet that, 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 that David was anointed to be the next king. Saul was just insane with jealousy. So David's on the run, hiding in caves, but he's about to have a chance to take a shortcut to the throne. Temptation is about to knock on the door of David's future. Look at this, 1 Samuel 24. After King Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men, these are like his green berets, okay, um, from all of Israel to set out and look for David and his men by the crags of the wild goats, right? Everybody knows where that is, right? Okay. Um, he came to the sheep pens, again, everybody knows where that is, right? Along the way, and a cave was there. <clears throat> Here we go. And Saul went in to relieve himself. <laughs> David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of. Now notice this right here. When he said to you, David, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. <laughs> I mean, here's a way out, David. Here's a way out of the cave. 
And kind of funny here, right? Saul, the writer is really telling us way more than we want to know about Saul here, right? But he does this to show us that Saul is totally vulnerable at the moment. Like it says he's relieving himself. You got that, right, friends? He's, he's not taking a nap, okay? Like what do, you, what do you do in the restroom, okay? Right? Yeah, you're not taking, well, maybe you're taking a nap. I don't know. There's not a lot of napping going on in the restrooms that I've been, okay? But um, if we were in, like, if I was doing this message with teenagers, I have so many jokes I could tell, but I'll stay away from it. I'll share those with Hector later. All right, so um, just suffice to say, there's nothing that Saul would be able to do, right? He is not seeing anything that's going on around him. And then notice what David's men say to him. The men say, this is the day who spoke of? The Lord spoke of, right? <laughs> They're saying, hey, David, God promised you deliverance, and here it is. Saul's here. You can do away with him. You can kill him. This must be what God wants. He doesn't want you to be unhappy and miserable in the cave. God doesn't want you in the wilderness. Saul deserves judgment. Heaven knows this is a clear way out of the cave. This must be God's will. And don't you think, after that much time, that this must have been so tempting for David, right? And so the story goes on. It says he goes towards Saul, but he just cuts off a corner of his robe. And even by doing that, it says later that he feels awful for taking that action against the king. And he lets him live. In verse 6, it says, David says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift up my hand against him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And then Saul left the cave and went his way. You know, I just think about this story, and it had to be so tempting for David to think, oh, I could get out of the cave now. But he knew that it would have been wrong. It would have been a shortcut that ultimately, I think, would have destroyed David's heart and soul. Listen, some of us this morning are in a cave. Maybe you're in a discouraging place for some reason, but you can think of a shortcut to relief that's tempting you. And maybe there's some of us that are here this morning that the reason, the only reason you're here this morning is, is God brought you here for this next 60 seconds because you have a decision to make. Will you submit to God? Will you trust God? Maybe you feel so alone because you've been single for a long time. Or, or your marriage is in the wilderness. And there's this other relationship that promises intimacy or closeness. And it's so tempting to think, well, that's available. It would feel so good. And I'm miserable and lonely in this cave. And God wants me to be happy. I can rationalize this. But friends, that's a shortcut. That's not God's best for your life. It goes against his desire for you. And so if that's you in that situation, the question that your future hangs on right now is this. Will you take the shortcut or will you trust God? Will you say, all right, God, I'll spend more time in this cave. As hard as it is, I will not take a shortcut to get out of here. I will choose to trust you. Will you do that? Will you do that? Or maybe in your story, it's a financial shortcut. Or maybe in your life, there's a quick fix where you could just mislead somebody and just make everything easier or better. 
Maybe there's a pattern of temptation or behavior that's been going on that's sinful and destructive. Um, maybe for someone here, there's something that you're committed to and you, it's getting really hard and you just want to quit. You know God's calling you to hang in there and be faithful, but it's hard and so you're tempted to run away. And so for some of us here this morning, we just have to ask ourselves the question, will I have the courage not to take the shortcut, not to give in to temptation, to even stay in this cave even though it would be so easy to get out? Because my brothers, my sisters, a shortcut like that can, can really wreak havoc on your soul. It can give us relief for a moment, no doubt, but it can cause deep damage to our hearts. See, most of us, when we move into these dark places, these, these caves or desert places, we just want to find a way out. And in the cave experience of David's life, he had to resist a quick fix shortcut. See, in the cave, David was separated from everything that he had leaned on or depended on. And all that was left for him at that point was God himself. And in that time and in that way, that's where he developed an unshakable trust in God. Again, no sermon can like take us there. It's something that's pressed into us as we wander the desert, as we are holed up in the cave. We are shaped, we are formed, we are refined, we are made stronger as we trust God, especially in those difficult cave seasons of our lives. And every time that we say yes to trusting God and no to the shortcut, our trust in God gets a little bit stronger. Uh, worship team, if you'll come. One more thought here and then I'll close. Um, one other thing that occurred to me is that the cave, this desert place, that's where we learn to love God for God's sake. Not just for the milk and honey, not just the promise of a throne, because in the de desert cave, there aren't any toys. You don't get the promotion. You don't even get the job. The disease is not cured. The problem isn't solved. All we get in the desert cave is his presence. In Exodus 13, 22, it says, God did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from his people. That was a symbol of his presence that never left them. And sometimes it would be really nice for us to be able to see something physical, right? Oh, there's the cloud, there's the fire. But the truth is, whether we can see or be reminded in any physical way, the truth is that when you're in a cave, even you can't see or feel, the presence of God is with you. Because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you. <laughs> you are not alone in this. And that's where I'm learning, and, and it'll take a long time, but that's where I'm learning to trust God, not for what he does to me or gives to me. That's where we just learn to love God simply because he's God, no matter how hard things are in the moment. That's where we learn to trust that he really is good, that his heart can be trusted, and that he is with us. My friends, he knows our pain, our fear, our confusion, and he is with us. I'm going to ask you to stand with us as the worship team leads us. And let's let this song 
be a prayer and a reminder that he is with us wherever we go.